Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. And uh, this is, we've done maybe a thousand programs since the uh, pandemic began. This is probably not the exact 1,000th one, but it's a really good one. So we have uh, Lita McCullough Seletsky here to tell the story about her book, The Kneeling Man. Um, it's a picture a lot of people have in their minds of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. And uh, her father is in that picture. And uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating story about her father's life, which you really didn't know about until how old? 35-ish. Wow. And counting. And counting? Okay. So you, you think there's a lot more to learn, huh? In, you, he's a pretty dynamic man, so yeah. yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's start with, uh, shall we call him Meryl or Mac? Which one do you like? Um, Mac, Mac works okay. great. Okay. So Mac as a child, growing up in a relatively small family, Small family of 12 children, yeah, I guess. Yeah. So, and he uh, grew up in Mississippi, just just south of Tennessee, that area? That's right, in the Mississippi Delta. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, tell a little bit about his childhood, you know, what his circumstances were like, what his parents were like. He had a lot of really great stories that set the, the tone for, because it's hard when you know that story to imagine what it took to do what he ended up doing, right? A lot of a lot of willpower. That's exactly right. And and what an unlikely trajectory mm-hmm. that his life took. So Mac uh, was born Morel McCullough in Tibbs, Mississippi in 1944, which is in Tunica County, Mississippi, which is one of the poorest counties in Mississippi, which, of course, is one of the poorest states in the United States. And so, of course, you know, 1944 in Mississippi um, was the heat of Jim Crow. You know, I mean, the state was sweltering with the heat of oppression, I think, Dr. King said um, about it. And so, um, you know, along with that came systemic, overt, violent oppression. But when you're born into that kind of world, it just seems natural to you. So, you know, he actually, my father remembers it um, as a pretty happy time in his life. You know, the, the early years, you know, the first five years of his life. I mean, he described it as being kind of like the Waltons, you know, if you're yeah. familiar with the show, the Waltons, <laughs> he said it was Waltons ish, you know? So, uh, yes, he was one of 12, uh, children born to Walter and Lucille McCullough who rented farmland and rented a a farmhouse on that land. And so they grew crops, they grew sorghum, they grew cotton. They had um, a mill where they would mill the sorghum and some molasses. Um, They picked the cotton, they took it to the cotton gin and, you know, uh, did all those sorts of things. And so his early life, you know, um, again, was just being part of that family. You know, as soon as the kids had some dexterity and could walk, they 
they were immediately put to work doing different tasks around the place. And so um, that's what he remembers. He remembers being out in the potato field with his mother, you know, and she's got this apron and, you know, picking potatoes. And he told this story about how one time one of the neighbors was coming down this dirt lane. Um, and so when she saw him coming, you know, she started like she dropped all the potatoes because she wanted to fix her hair up really quick. And you know, when I heard about that, I... Um, I thought, okay, well, that's where I get that from. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> okay. So uh, that was the first five years. Yeah. But then things rapidly took a turn uh-huh. for the worse. Um, and really the troubles started, you know, they-, they He was kinda, one of the younger ones, right? That's right. He was, I think, the fourth from the youngest. Uh-huh. And so, you know, oftentimes these tragedies come in threes, and mm-hmm. that's really what happened. Um First, he had a, a baby sister who uh, suddenly died, you know, as as a toddler, essentially. Um, and then his mother one day was walking through the house and um, just collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they took her to this charity hospital that would, you know, serve black people at that mm-hmm. time. And she essentially never really came out of that. She was sick. They don't know what it was. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things where people didn't really talk, you know, about, you know, these specific illnesses so much. But my father has the sense that it was a cancer of some type mm-hmm. and perhaps like a, a um, you know, a gynecological cancer. But in any event, she was sick um, and lingered on for a little while, but then, you know, uh, died shortly after becoming ill. And then um, he had a a teenage sister who um, he was really close to because the older girls were given charge of one of the younger Mm -hmm. siblings. And so um, Shag, they called her. And Shag uh, one day got really sick. And um, well, it turned out, you know, she was what? She was a a young teenager. I mean, I want to say, you know, early teens. Well, it turned out that she was pregnant. And um, she ended up having to go into the hospital and um, died mm-hmm. and the baby died. Mm-hmm. So once this happened, it destabilized everything. And um, really, it was um, a combination of just the disorder in the house mm-hmm. with you know, the mother gone and then the, you know, the other tragedies and then also the economic hardship because even though, you know, the mother was being treated in a charity hospital, it still cost some money and it mm-hmm. took every penny that they had. So they could no longer afford to rent this land. They could no longer afford to rent the house or anything. So they had to leave that land with just, you know, a mule and what they could carry mm-hmm. um, in a cart. And um, so Walter now has all these kids um, and he's got to figure out how is he going to support them and keep the family together. So they end up sharecropping. And that's when the real hardships start, where my father told me he had this sense, you know, as this young child, you know, I'm talking like six or so of like, um, we're poor now, mm. which I mean, they were poor before, of course, but n- mm. now they're really, you know, things are yeah. very, very tenuous. But, you know, they're they're able to do the sharecropping and um, 
Um, but it, it's it gets really bad. I mean, one of the uh, siblings ends up because the kids are kind of running wild. There's mm-hmm. nobody to, and then the father kind of falls into a depression and, and begins to drink. And so one of the kids runs off and um, becomes apprentice to a bootlegger. You know, that's down the lane. And, and and he wasn't very old either. No, oh no, he. I mean, he was like eleven or twelve. Yeah, he wasn't even a teenager. He was like a teen. Yeah, um, yeah bootlegger apprentice. And um, I mean, it's just, and uh, then my father and his younger brother, Floyd, who are very close in age, they don't go to school Mm -hmm. because there's nobody to make them go to school. And moreover, they don't even have clothes that are suitable to wear to school. Mm -hmm. Their clothes are rags. They don't have shoes. They're just running around aimlessly, you know, in the yard. The Waltons. Um, yes, like the, the that like the well, right? The Waltons now. The, the Waltons are over now. This is something else. This is like you know, um, I don't know. This is Barefoot, like yeah. Charles Dickens of Mississippi. <laughs> so it gets really bad. Um, however, Walter, the father, mm. ends up meeting a woman, Miss Ethel, who uh, whom he quickly marries, and so she writes the ship. Mm. You know, she comes in, gets everybody in order. You know, she considered her mission in life to mother, to mother children. You know, she'd been previously married to a man who had passed away. And, you know, she just thought, you know, this is what I do and I'm good at it. You know, she was a very smart woman, although she um, could not read or write, Mm -hmm. but she had, you know, good sense and she was an intelligent woman. And so she got the clothes patched up and got those kids to school. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah. And and, and by the way, there's some moves that are happening just geographically with the sharecropping, but Mm -hmm. things eventually stabilize and the family is doing okay. And so that's, that's pretty much a picture of Mac's childhood. You know, when I read that story, I mean, all the obvious problems with it, but I thought to myself, one of the most obvious things about how awful the situation was, was Miss Ethel. She was this kind of a woman, and this was her option, was, you know, marrying a guy with six people, totally dirt poor, and she seemed like a totally, you know, on top of a woman, widow. But that's, that was what her options were, not, not anything against your grandfather. Mm-hmm. But, but that's just a, a very interesting part of the whole process, is that there's so little option available for how you're going to live. Right. And I mean, I think that is a thread through the story of, you know, this idea that, yes, on some level, people have a measure of personal agency. But, you know, the choices that they have are very much circumscribed Mm -hmm. by, you know, where they sit in society. Mm -hmm. You know, being black people in Jim Crow, Mississippi, you know, the array of options are not huge to begin with. But, yes, someone like Miss Ethel, you know, who um, cannot read or write. I mean, she... Mm -hmm definitely had few options. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet she loved those kids as if they were her own. Mm-hmm. And had it not been for her, you know, I shudder to think what would have happened to that family. Yeah. All right. So um, he's now in school at the age of seven, right? Something like that? Something like that. And so he just shows up at the schoolhouse I love it. with I love his it. brother Floyd. <laughs> and, you know, so it's like a two-room schoolhouse. Really, it's one room, but they have a divider in there. So um, he shows up and tells, you know, the principal that, um, yeah, um, I'm supposed to be in second grade and Floyd should be in first. And so the principal says, okay, and so puts them in these classes. But, I mean, really, they are, you know, they're a couple of years older than, you know, the grades they were placed in. But, um, you know, they begin to go to this school, and Mac loved school. And he he was a very, you know, very soon, you know, after he arrives in the classroom, he shows that, 
he's got a talent for mm-hmm. learning. He loves to read. You know, the teachers will actually call on him to give presentations. And mm-hmm. you know, he had to memorize Bible stories, like the story of Samson. And mm-hmm. they'd have him come up to the room and tell the story. It's a good story. Mm, it's, <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a classic. My father used to always like to do the voice of God. That was his favorite. So, so what I found interesting, again, about that story was that, that your father, Mac, immediately took charge of the situation at seven years old, laid down the law, I'm in second, he's in first, you know, and, and then proved that he was right. That's right. It was a, a, nice, a nice start to a life that was a, there was a lot of that in it. Right. And you can see just, um, you know, how formative all these experiences must have been for him, Mm -hmm. you know, um, kind of going from order to disorder back to, you know, the ability to have order again. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this idea that, you know, you've got to reach inside of yourself Mm -hmm. and make what you can of the situation that you find yourself in. So. He did well, very well in school, and he was you know, respected by the teachers. And, and now we're talking about a two, uh, a one room, two grade level schoolhouse. So it was probably two or three teachers, right? At, yeah, uh, I mean, they yeah they had you know kids of all ages, and they were just divided up in groups and right. they shared this little building. And so, how did he he move on from there? Because he got the the assistance from teachers that liked him, right? That's right. And so, you know, he just continued to move on in school. Um, I mean, the family, you know, relocates a couple times, Mm -hmm. but basically he, you know, he continues um, in school on on track and actually excelling. Mm -hmm. And... um, And his little brother drops out. Oh, yeah, the little brother. Now, Floyd... (laughs) Different story. Different story. He, you know, he wasn't more, he wasn't really the classroom kind of guy. Like he liked driving a tractor when they got, they ended up moving to this um, big farm uh, called the Cahill place. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, once the, you know, boys are, you know, older um, and I'm talking like teens, then they're able to kind of drive the big equipment and, Mm -hmm. you know, have some responsibility. Floyd liked driving the tractor. He liked that feeling of freedom, being up high, you know, and so he ended up dropping out. But Mac... Um, he just gets a reputation for being this talented kid. He's going some places, you know, and, you know, he's, he's pretty smart. Maybe he could actually be a preacher because I mean, that was the upwardly mobile profession that black people had access to. I mean, basically it was, you know, preacher, teacher, you know, I mean, those were the main ones, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're talking about getting federal jobs, which that wasn't really in the, you know, in the mix there. But anyway, so the the elders at the church that um, the family ends up going to take an interest in Mac. And so they give him some responsibility. He ends up teaching Sunday school. They're kind of grooming him mm-hmm. to be a preacher. And he's how old? 15 or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, by this time, he's moved on through, you know, his tweens and teens. And now, you know, he's a teenager. Right. And he's a, but he's a preacher at, 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 thing at 15 years of age. He's teaching Sunday school. Yeah. He gets sent to the, you know, the Mississippi uh, I don't know if it's a convocation, but, you know, convention of the Sunday schools mm-hmm. and representing, um, you know, their little church and, you know, yeah. giving his reports and reporting back. So, yeah. yeah. Very interesting at such an age, you know, to, yeah. to, to take on that responsibility. So he he doesn't make it to the end of high school, though. He does not, um, although that's really what he wanted to do. Like, right. He really wanted to you know, of course, complete high school. And he wanted, 
you know, higher education. Mm. He wanted a college degree, but he knew that the only way he could possibly get a college degree would be through the GED, you know, right. and serving in the military. And also there was this tradition in his family of military service because he had a couple of older brothers who had served in, um, in the army. And so that was just something that was kind of expected. And, you know, they had good things to say about it. And then again, you know, going back to this idea of, you know, things you can do that give you upward mobility, military, that's a way to get, you know, out, get up and out. And so he, um, applied, you know, well, once he turned um, 18, you know, he had, had to fill out the selective service form and everything. Of course, he's a couple of years um, behind where he should be in school. So even though he's eligible for the selective service, he's still a high school student. Right. But um, long story short, he, um, you know, gets uh, you know, taken in for this examination. You know, they go, they put on a bus from Mississippi, go to Memphis, go get examined. They have to take some kind of test, you know, a written test. And um, he is found to be like, you know, whatever for officer material. Yeah. Like he's, you know, he, he can go, he's ready. And so a recruiter comes to the house one day, you know, to see Walter and Miss Ethel and say, hey, you know, I'm from the army and, you know, we want to talk to you about your son and we just want to, you know, let you know, you know, he he wants to go to college and this is a great way for him to go to college. And actually, he can continue going to high school if he just goes ahead and enlists now. If you just sign this paper, then you can just continue on like you are, but you'll be, you know, under the care of Uncle Sam. And, you know, this is the right choice for you. So he's led to believe, he and Walter, that um, he's just going to continue going to high school, even though he has enlisted in the armed services of the United States. So he... he Find that a little bit unbelievable? (laughs) You know, (laughs) one wonders. I mean, it just... He he probably had a quarter he had to fill that month or something. Yeah, exactly. And I just think... You know, trying to put myself in the mindset of Walter and Mac. I mean, you know, looking around in the Mississippi Delta, what else is there? I mean, you know, Walter had already sent Mac away um, from Mississippi at a certain point to live in um, the St. Louis suburbs because he could see that as Mac was getting older and, you know, into his teenage years, he's starting to butt heads with, you know, um, this white boss that he had at this Cahill place. And, you know, it might not even be a safe place for him as he's growing into his manhood. So um, we we're talking about let's see, born in 44. So we're talking about 1962 ish. Yes. The early 60s. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, there's this idea that. Mac's got to get out if he's going to have a chance to really become who he is becoming. Mm-hmm. So I think they just, you know, they heard what they wanted to hear mm-hmm. and they went with it. But of course, you cannot continue high school once you've enlisted <laughs> in the art services. Hello. No, so that did not happen. So he he was tricked into dropping out of high school. High school was over for him mm-hmm. once it was time for him to report for duty. So he reports for duty and realizes fairly soon that he's been tricked uh, in, into going in. But he, he, he's accepting because, as you say, there's so few options. Um, so he, he makes his way in the military quite well, too. Um, takes a certain battery of tests, stuff like that, and, and they pick out for him to be 
a military policeman. <laughs> and I say men because they were men. So he he was assigned to military police school. So, you know, um, he starts off in South Carolina. He does his eight weeks of basic training or what have you. Um, then he ends up doing eight weeks of military police school. And, um, you know, that was the road that was chosen for him, you know, presumably based on this written test that he had to take, which, I mean, this is a very opaque process. Yeah. But he did that and graduated from that military police school. And, you know, once you're in the military, obviously you go where they put you and you do what they tell you to do. And that's exactly what happened. So um, upon graduation, he was assigned to go up to Maryland um, and uh, guard some super secret stuff that, I mean, you didn't know what it was, but he did the rounds like he yeah. was told. And then he gets sent over to Germany. And uh, again, once again, he's he's placed, um, you know, as a military policeman guarding these very sensitive, you know, NATO type facilities. Um, With nuclear weapons. Nucle there were some nukes there. Yeah. yeah. So when I say super sensitive, like yeah. I think that the. Um, he still hasn't told you where it was, right? I know where it is. Oh, you know where it is. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> but um, I believe that at the time, and, and I think a lot of this has been declassified because I found right. some things online about it. But um, I don't think at the time that the soldiers were allowed to tell their families exactly where they were. Right. So it was, I mean, when I say sensitive, like this was, you know, really mm. secret. And so he did that, um, you know, and he, he, his obligation was a three-year um, stint in the army. Um, now, as he's coming to the close of the three years, the war in Vietnam is heating up. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, they need more people to go over there. In fact, a lot of people from his military police school class were sent over. Mm -hmm. um, and um, also a lot of his colleagues decided they wanted to see some action. Mm -hmm. you know, they wanted to go to Vietnam. So they were filling out these forms to extend, you know, their, their tours and things like that. Um, but Mac, you know, my father, uh, he had a very different idea because, you know, again, his objective was to you know do his duty and then have the government fulfill its other end of the bargain. And also in the military, you know, he had such a desire to have this education that he completed his GED. So at least he could, you know, have this edu education. And so he, you know, he's working these long shifts doing whatever, you know, the army's telling him to do. And then, you know, after hours, He's going back to the barracks and he's hitting the books and he's going to class and studying. And so he got his GED. And then when his three years were up in 1967, he um, was done. He shipped out, shipped home. Uh, when, when you said that he didn't fall for the Vietnam thing, I thought that expression, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, shame on you. Sorry. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Yeah. I'm sure. He didn't fall for it. No. I, yeah. I, I'm guessing that once, uh, you know, he'd already dropped out of high school. So he's like, I think I'm just going to do my thing now. I'm not going to let them guide me <laughs> further on whatever path they want to put me on. So another interesting thing in your in your description of military police school was he had to unlearn some things he had learned in basic training because they did it differently. Oh, yeah. I think that was just a, an interesting insight into into the army training you one way and then say, okay, but we don't do it that way. We do it this way because 
You shouldn't, you shouldn't scream, right? That, that was, I like that story. Yeah. So, okay, in basic training, you know, they're taught, like, different types of combat and, um, you know, kind of hand-to-hand and how to flip people over and what to do if you fall. This is, like, how to fall if somebody flips you over. <laughs> and so they're told in basic training, now, you know, if you get flipped over and you fall down, then you need to scream so you can let the air out of your lungs. And so when you hit that ground, you need to scream. Okay, so, you know, they all do that. Then he gets to military police school. And uh, so then he's told, now I know you were told in basic training that when you got flipped over and fell on the ground, you were supposed to scream, but we don't want our military police officers screaming. <laughs> so don't you scream. <laughs> you get knocked down. So, yeah. Whether you get hurt or not, when you're not screaming. Exactly. Not our, our reputation, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so he, he gets his official discharge. And he goes to live not with Walter and uh, Miss Ethel, no. But but he's got all these older brothers and sisters and other families spread around. So he goes to Memphis, right? He goes to Memphis, which you know, Memphis is probably the closest big city to where you know Walter and Ethel are, and you know where he grew up. Because I mean, you know, Mississippi Delta is is pretty close to Memphis. In fact, some people joke that Memphis is the capital of Mississippi, which <laughs> I don't know. But um, so he goes to Memphis um, because, you know, he is trying once again to have this career, to have this agency. He wants to go to college, um, you know, and, and we all know, I'm pretty sure what was going on in, you know, Ole Miss and the colleges in Mississippi around, you know, in the 60s with James Meredith trying to integrate mm-hmm. Ole Miss and the big riot and everything. So, no, he does not want to be dabbling in that. He's going to Memphis um, where he also has um, some relatives. You know, he's got a sister there who is married um, and he figures, well, now I've done my duty. I've got my GED. I can go to Memphis and get a job. So that's what he uh, sets off to do. And he gets all these jobs arranged for it. But, uh, but one of his relatives just tells him that he probably could get into the police, right? Well, yeah. What, what happens is he comes to Memphis and he cannot get a job <laughs> is the way that went. And so, um, you know, he's, he's looking day after day. But then, yes, his cousin, Eugene, arranges, arranges it. Yeah. Right. And so he ends up working um, in these uh, kind of manual labor type jobs, making minimum wage, which is like $1.60 an hour, something like that. And so he, that's what he thinks his life is going to look like, working, you know, getting up before the sun comes up, going to a warehouse, then getting off that job, working a full shift at a motorboat repair company, going home, going to sleep and doing it again. That's what they do. Then one day he and his cousin Eugene are riding to work, listening to talk radio as they always did. And a recruiting ad comes on the radio, you know, and it's you know, the siren sound, you be a Memphis police officer, come on down to the Memphis police headquarters and we're recruiting. And um, so Eugene turns to Mac and says, hey, weren't you a military police officer? (laughs) And my dad says, yeah. And he says, well, you want to go down there and see if you can be a Memphis police officer. And my dad's just like, you know, because remember, he could not get any kind of job, you know, let alone one with this kind of responsibility and a badge. And so he says, you know, they're not going to hire me. And Eugene says, well, you don't know that. You just, you should go at least try. So my dad says, okay, well, 
All right. So he drops Eugene off and then he goes down to the Memphis Police Department headquarters thinking he's just going to walk in there and pick up an application, take it back and just, you know, just to keep Eugene happy, fill out his <laughs> application and then go about his business. So he's got his warehouse clothes on, you know, and he goes in there. Um, but it does not go that way at all. No. Not at all. They keep, yeah, it goes much better. (laughs) Well, yeah, it does. Although, you know, at first it might not necessarily seem that way because he ends up having to jump through a ton of hoops. What he doesn't know, you know, when he gets there is this is the last day to apply for this recruiting draft. So if he doesn't get it done that day, it's not getting done. So, you know, he goes in there and, um, you know, talks to this recruiting officer and um, immediately angers this guy because, you know, the first thing the officer asks for when, when my dad asks for the application is, okay, well, let me see your ID. And he pulls out this Mississippi driver's license that is expired. <laughs> and so this officer's face reddens. He's like, well, why are you coming in here with expired license? <laughs> so my dad makes up this story about how, oh, well, um, well, I uh, was in the military, and so we get a 90-day grace period or whatever. He makes up a story about having a grace period. <laughs> so he gets past that hurdle. However, you know, he doesn't have these other materials that he needs, like a birth certificate or, you know, something to show, document that he is of age to be a police officer and this and that. So he's got to go track down somebody who can vouch for his age, you know, his high school principal down in the Mississippi Delta. So he's got to get that. Um, so he ends up having to drive down to Mississippi, track down this principal. Without a, a license. Without a license, <laughs> valid license, by the way, which, you know living dangerously on the roads of Mississippi yeah. and, you know, goes to try to find this principal who turns out is in the hospital. So got to go to a different town across the County, find this guy in a hospital room. And, um, you know, he gets this letter and comes back, by the way, Eugene. All has, the same day. What about Eugene? This is all the same day. All the same day, yeah. yeah. Eugene's at the motorboat, or sorry, he's at the Sashendor warehouse. He's got to go to the other job, but Mac has the car that Eugene right. loaned him. So Eugene, you know, oh, well, we can't worry about that. <laughs> Mac gets the letter, comes back to the police department headquarters. You know, okay, I've got it. Okay, now you got to fill out the form. So he fills out this form. They want all of his biographical data and references. Where'd you go to school? You know, addresses. And so he gets it done. And then the recruiting officer says, okay, now it's time for you to take the civil service exam. It's beginning at five o'clock at the federal plaza, you know, across the way. So now he's got to go take the civil service exam. Mm -hmm. So he goes in there, you know, and there's these other folks coming in, you know, and they're all like dressed to take a civil service exam, I guess, you know, these military types. He's still wearing his warehouse clothes, but he goes in there, takes the exam, and um, there's a lot of waiting, you know, the waiting room, everybody's waiting. And then periodically, you know, after, you know, they, they fill out these papers and take the exam, then they go wait. And then from time to time, somebody will come in and call a name. And then the person gets up and they don't come back. So, you know, the, the crowd is getting whittled down and down and down. And then finally, there's a smaller group and then they have to go in for interviews. And so their question before this panel of like police department brass. Mm-hmm. And so um, my dad has this experience of sitting in the little chair and then there's all these guys with like the bars and (laughs) the brass and he has to answer all these questions you know and and one of the questions that really stuck with him was um 
you know, and I'm just going to tell you how they said it, pardon the language, but this was what was asked of him. You know, so, um, you know, why you were a military police officer, but what makes you think you can be a Memphis police officer? You know, military police and city police aren't the same. And so my dad said, well, you know, I learned that job and I can learn this job like I did that one. Okay, fine. And then another one says, um, well, what are you going to do when you get out there and somebody calls you a nigger? (laughs) Well, and he said something to the effect that, you know, well, whatever they call me, I'm going to do my job and I'm not going to let that stop me, you know, from doing my job. And so then he goes, you know, he's dismissed, goes back in the waiting room. And then around midnight, somebody comes in the room and says, congratulations, you have been selected to attend the Memphis Police Academy pending a favorable medical examination. (laughs) So that's the story of that. Wow. I mean, and and so... All those things happened between, what, 9 a.m. And, and midnight that one day, right? More or less, yeah. I just love it that he had time to go out and find find the principal in place and get a letter and come back and say, see, I'm old enough. Yeah. <laughs> and still get to the 5 o'clock selective service exam. Right. Yeah, that, that, uh, that would make you believe in destiny almost. It really would. I mean, when he walked out of there, he, he talks about, you know, how his car was like the only car parked now at this point in Main Street, <laughs> downtown. It's dark, you know. Oh. And, uh, you know, he gets out there on that lonely, you know, downtown street and tears just start streaming down his face. Yeah. yeah. Because of everything that happened, you know. It worked. Yeah. Yeah. So, um what did he ever do for Eugene after that? Did he did he go find him? Uh... Well, <laughs> he got back. And he got back to his little rooming house where he was staying. And he calls Eugene. He's like, I am so sorry. <laughs> Let yeah. me tell you what happened. And Eugene was so happy for him. He would not take any apology. Mm. He was really happy for him. That's a good cousin. Yeah. All right. So he gets in. He moves along. You know, I want to spend a little time on the on the fact that he ended up in the, the uh, undercover group for the police. But he's only with the police for a couple of months, doing not much. They didn't find anything good for him to do. And then they assigned him to be an undercover agent. Mm-hmm. Does he have any, I mean, other than they thought, well, he'll fit in, I'm sure, or something like that. But other than that, was there any other qualifications or training he was given before he went and became an undercover policeman? Because that's a, that's a pretty dangerous job. Well, the qualification was to be somebody who could blend in with a large group of black people (laughs) in a planning meeting for the sanitation strike supporters. So here's what happened. Okay, he graduates from the Memphis Police Academy, um, December 1967, becomes a patrolman doing foot patrols. It's very boring. Mm. Then he gets the car patrols. Very boring. Then... In February 1968, so mind you, he's been out of the academy for two months. Right. The historic sanitation strike breaks out in Memphis, where these sanitation workers essentially just walked off the job because of the brutal mistreatment that they experienced. They were dehumanized. A couple of them had been crushed in the back of their sanitation truck because that was the only place they had to go to take shelter during their shifts because... 
these workers, the you know, vast majority of black workers are not provided any kind of facilities, any kind of, you know, care. They're doing these routes. The way that their pay is um, calculated, many of them are wa- making below minimum wage. They have to provide their own equipment, which many of them are sourcing from the garbage that they pick up. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they have, you know, once these two workers are killed, that just sets off this you know, unprecedented labor action. Memphis had never seen anything like it. So the garbage is not getting picked up and law enforcement starts getting concerned about these reports that, you know, the supporters of this strike may um, try to interfere with the collection of the garbage by these scab workers that the city hires. So the police um, officers, the patrol officers are assigned additional 12 hour shifts in addition to their normal shifts to escort the garbage trucks, which my dad ends up having to do. Then he's assigned to guard the landfill to make sure no, you know, bad guys come in and mess with the garbage trucks, which none of this ever happens. Then one day he gets a call at the landfill to come down to the office of the assistant chief of police, Henry Lux. And he goes into this office and in that office are two black officers. One is a patrol officer. I think the other is a detective. And then some officers from the police department's intelligence bureau. So the police department had an intelligence bureau. Mm -hmm. And so um, Assistant Chief Lux says that, you know, the strike supporters are having these mass meetings at, you know, a couple of different black churches. There's one called Claiborne Temple, Mm -hmm. where he wants my dad and another black patrolman to go down there in their plain clothes and just simply, you know, blend in, listen in to what they're talking about. Are they planning any kind of civil unrest? Are they planning to interfere with the collection of the garbage by um, the scabs and just report back on what they're hearing? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my dad, you know, having just come from the landfill Mm -hmm. is like, Sure. I would love to do that. <laughs> okay, he really doesn't he'd love to, but you know, he's not thinking that it's anything nefarious, um, which shows, you know, a certain level of naivete, of course. Mm-hmm. He's 23 years old, by the way. Mm-hmm. He's 23 years old. He's been out of the academy two months. Um, he's seen next to nothing and he's not thinking of the potential implications of, mm-hmm. you know, listening in on a group of peaceful activists and reporting to law enforcement on them. So he just goes back, changes out of his uniform, you know, in just plain clothes, goes down to Claiborne Temple, sits in there and listens in on what they're saying and reports back the truth of that, which was, I mean, they're just talking about supporting the strikers. You know, they're raising money to support these families who no longer have an income, but there's nothing, um, there's no danger from these folks. They're not planning any kind of, you know, unrest. And so that's what he does. And you know, I mean, this is how he becomes a spy. He has walked through that door now. And and the other policeman that was there was he identified as a policeman during that meeting? So that yeah, this was uh. I believe this was a subsequent meeting. Oh, okay. The first one I think he made it, but mm. I mean this was very early on. So mm. the other patrolman had been a patrolman for longer than my dad. So I mean, I'm sure probably half of Black Memphis had seen this man right. in a police uniform. So he's in there and then one day, you know, my dad's sitting there and this other guy's sitting there and they had split up. I mean, they're not sitting together. And then somebody stands up and says, Hey, there's a cop in here. Yeah. And points at him. And then somebody else stands up. And so then, you know, this officer, I think his name was uh, Willie B. Richmond, if I'm not mistaken. But so then he's like, "Uh oh, (laughs) you know, and he gets up and he runs out and folks chase him out of there. Mm -hmm. 
And so then my dad sees what's happening. He's like, well, I better help him. So he runs too. You know, as if he's running, as if after. He's running after him as a strike supporter, right. but he's actually trying to keep his partner or, you know, partner from getting killed in the street. So, you know, he runs out, but um, Richmond, I think it was, uh, this other officer gets away, you know, he's fine. So then Mac, you know, saunters back in like, you know, oh, well, <laughs> back to our meeting. You know? Yeah. It's 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 amazing how many decisions he made early on and quickly as a young man, which worked out for him pretty well. I mean, he seemed to keep his cover pretty well. Mm-hmm. So so now now he's in the undercover agency. He's done some reports and stuff like that. So then they ask him to join the invaders. Yes, and it's those, a great name by the way. It's a great name, <laughs> and they chose this name very intentionally. So the Invaders were a group of young black people in the city, um, men and women, predominantly men, predominantly living in this uh, area of Memphis, South Memphis. Who um, they took a lot of inspiration from groups like the Black Panthers, and mm-hmm. you know, so they had kind of this Marxist-Leninist sort of political outlook. But essentially, what they Um, stood for and what they worked for was, um, you know, black self-determination, black pride, black cultural education, you know? And so they felt like, you know, nobody's more marginalized than poor black people in Memphis. And so that's us who are young, by the way, you know, young people, because we don't even have this, you know, respect that you get as an elder. Mm -hmm. And so they felt like who better to represent the interests of the disenfranchised than a group like us. And so this group, you know, chose the name invaders because they, um, and, and the name comes from this popular, I think it was a, a TV show at the time about these folks who, um, they were space aliens, but they wore human costumes. So you couldn't tell <laughs> if they were looking at an invader or looking at, you know, a human being. So, you know, anyone could be an invader. So they wanted the start, to- The start of the entire, you know, theory about reptilians. Is that what that was? Um, <laughs> I need to watch the show. But um, so they wanted to have this idea that, you know, when you look at a young black person in Memphis, you don't know if this is an invader, you know, you don't yeah, know yeah. If we're dangerous. You know, they wanted to have that, um, they want to have that swagger and they wanted to have that um, kind of edge to them mm. to, to get that respect and attention. And the name certainly did get attention. And so law enforcement became aware of them. Mm-hmm. And, of course, was not a fan, you know. And this is a time when, you know, it's during the Cold War. And so the mindset in law enforcement was not, you know, civil liberties. We've got to make sure that, you know, no one's First Amendment rights are being impinged upon. (laughs) They are not thinking this way at all. They are thinking about containment Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, toxic ideas, contagions, you know, we don't want these dangerous ideas and these subversive ideas to spread like wildfire around the city. So we got to put it out before it becomes a big conflagration. Okay. So the invaders are being watched. They've gained the attention of law enforcement. And so, um, and, and Mac of course has successfully already infiltrated this strike supporter meeting. So he's asked, you know, well, He's told about this group called the Invaders, which he hadn't heard of before. And so he's asked if he might, you know, just keep an eye out for them because law enforcement is aware that the Invaders have been coming to the sanitation strike meetings and trying to, you know, potentially 
um, radicalize the position of the striking sanitation workers. And so could he kind of get uh, get into that group? Mm-hmm. And so um, he's able to do that fairly quickly. And he he had to give up his uniform, give up, move to another location. He, yeah, yeah, all, all kinds of things that, that that and then and then pretend to be a, a, another poor, impoverished, you know, young man who's going to identify with them. But he has a car. He's got a car. Well, <laughs> yes, I mean, so this was not. I thought, I thought that was so clever of how we got in. Yeah, he's offering rides to people. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which should have been suspicious. I it should have been. Yeah, um, it would be now. Yeah, definitely. And, would and be. if it wasn't before your book came out, anybody that people that, should keep a watch. Yeah, this kind of thing is still going on. Oh clearly, yeah, as absolutely. But um, yeah, this is when he has to make a break with his identity like mm-hmm. you know morel mccullough who you know is his real identity and then this mac character who's a radical you know uh, or part of this this subversive group so he's got to change his address you know he's got to make a break with his previous life he can't hang out with his relatives like he used to he's can't you know keep cutting his hair you know short and neat he's got to grow it out mm-hmm. and he's got to wear you know a dashiki and mm-hmm. um which also came in handy because you know he's got a sidearm and he's got like a, a gun. <laughs> and so it flows nicely over the gun that he's got in his waistband but um and he mo- he's got to move to a different yeah, part of uh town and mm-hmm. and to this rooming house he's got to change his phone number and so this is when He's got to wear this mask and really become this other character. So at this time, it's still only like four or five months after he started, right? Because I mean, because it, it, everything happens by June, right? I mean, well, actually, um, this is March. March. Oh, in <laughs> yeah. April is when the. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's, he started in February. I mean, I started in December. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by. April is when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. got shot. So everything that's happened so far is all happening within a couple of month period. He graduated from the police academy December 6th, 1967. The assassination is April 4th, 1968. Yeah, that's kind of amazing how many many changes he went through during that time and roles he played. Okay, so now he's the driver for the invaders. The minister of transportation. Yeah, sorry. That does sound like yes. that makes it sound like a Marxist Leninist organization. Oh, anything. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> minister. Yeah. OK. So he's the minister of transportation for them. And how does he get into the situation at the Lorraine Motel? So um, he's driving. I mean, he's got the car. He's the brother with the car. As uh, I talked to Ambassador Andrew Young, who's in that photograph as right. well. And so he said he only knew my father as the brother with the car. So um, <laughs> on April 4th, the morning of April 4th, you know, that day started like any other. He gets up in the morning, mm-hmm. goes down to Claiborne Temple, trying to figure out, okay, what are the invaders up to today? Runs into um, one of Dr. King's cohorts, um, um, a guy they called Baby Jesus. Uh, his name's James Orange. Um, but Baby Jesus is there, and he's talking to these two um, uh, women who are black college students, and they're you know activists as well. And so Baby Jesus needs a pair of four button overalls mm-hmm. to wear to this march, this demonstration that Dr. King is planning to lead in Memphis. And why does he need the overalls? Because he wants to look poor. 
Well, it's the farmer look. The, right. You know that. Um, so it wasn't look. really. It was. It was performative art even back then. Yeah. They were very smart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about the way. Go if you look at those photos of the yeah. demonstrations. Yeah. Like this was a very good look for because <laughs> and Dr. King's getting ready for the poor people's campaign. Right. right. Where they're going to lead this multiracial mule train mm-hmm. um, to Washington D.C. So. Mm. The overalls. Yeah, the I mean, overalls. Yeah. That was the right look. That's That was the look. And so, so, But you had to go out and buy them. It was hard to find. Yes. I love that part of the story. I, there was something about that that was just too good. They drove all over town. Yeah. And your father drove them all over to Looking get the Looking for these full overalls, which okay. they could not find that would fit him. <laughs> and so, you know, by the time they reconvene at the... Um, at Claiborne Temple, it's getting close to dinner time, mm-hmm. and they run into another one of Dr. King's cohorts, um, James Bevel. Mm-hmm. You know, very famous. I mean, this is a lion of the civil rights movement. And so um, Bevel and uh, Baby Jesus invite the college students to come to the Lorraine to have dinner. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Mac, you know, my dad decides, well, I, you know, I may as well go too. Plus I'm driving, you know, so. Right, right. And so basically my dad ends up driving baby Jesus and Bevel. Mm-hmm. And then the um, college students uh, drive together in their car. Mm-hmm. And so they drive over to the Lorraine Motel and they get there and they park. And it's right before six in the evening. And um, when they, you know, enter the parking lot, there are all these people gathered there looking up at this balcony because standing on the balcony outside of room 306 is none other than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Mm -hmm. who was on the balcony, leaning on the railing, talking to people, you know, in the parking lot. And so, you know, it's just kind of like, wow, you know, he's right here. What's he saying? And so as soon as my dad and the college students park, you know, they get out of their cars and they're kind of walking in the direction of the balcony so they can hear what Dr. King is saying and kind of be a part of it. And I mean, really, it's just moments after they get out of their cars that there is this thunderous boom. Mm -hmm. And then Dr. King falls on the balcony. Mm -hmm. And then the photo is taken. That is... And you're in your... Father, another thing I thought was very interesting about your father and his willpower was that he immediately wanted to do something about the situation. A lot of people freeze in these situations. Mm-hmm. But he was down below and he got up the stairs right away so that he was there within moments after the shot. That's right. He is one of these folks that you you know hear about or see on the news from time to time that runs into the active shooter right. situation to try to help somebody. Mm-hmm. Most people are not going to do, even if they wanted to do that, like mm-hmm. physically, could you, you know, go in the direction where someone has just been shot? But that's precisely what he did. Mm-hmm. And so he ran up an exterior staircase, got up on that second floor balcony, drops to a crawl, mm-hmm. crawls over. Um, there's a, a cart a cleaning cart with some towels on it he grabs a towel off the cleaning cart crawls over to dr king and um you know seeing this wound you know dr king has this you know horrific wound in his jaw and so you know in his head he's thinking about his military training and his police training like first aid gotta stop the bleeding you know there's really only one thing you can do in the situation, which is to apply pressure. And so that's what he does with the towel. And that's what he's doing in that photograph. And, and the other men around were even the famous men that were right around. And they also were just kind of in shock at the time and nobody was actually doing anything. 
Well, not not, do, not doing anything. They they were looking around and stuff like that to to see, but they 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 weren't attending to Dr. King. Well, I mean, there's various things happening. I mean, that photograph is like one snapshot of what right. was happening. But at one point, um, I believe it was Ralph Abernathy who mm-hmm. was Dr. King's close, you know, aide. Mm-hmm. He was out there at one point. There's a bunch of other photos that are taken. But yeah, I mean, as far as just that um, sort of um, first responder right. response. I mean, my father is the one seen doing that. I think, yeah, the other folks were just in shock. You know, military training. Yeah, that's what it's for, among other things. But it's it's interesting to see how how effective that kind of training is to make somebody do what's not in their their natural tendency to Mm -hmm. do. Even even those around him who loved him, Mm -hmm. your your father hardly knew him. Yeah, I mean, mean, didn't hadn't met him before, right? Basically, Mm -hmm. yeah. So so. We'll get back to what that did for your father later on, because uh, all the things that he did could be reinterpreted. Uh, oh, they have been. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So so uh, your father also figures out where the shot came from based upon the trajectory, based upon the wound, right? Using a technique that he learned in the military right. called shooting a back azimuth, mm-hmm. where you figure out trajectories of things. And he figures out, Based on, you know, how Dr. King has fallen, the wound, you know, and, and you know, just p- piecing together the scene, he pinpoints where he believes the shot came from, which was a small window in a ramshackle building across the way from this balcony. And higher up. And higher up. That's right. He, he figured that out. Mm-hmm. That was the location of the, of the, the shot was it fired. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh. When the police came, your father told the police where he thought it was from, explained that he was an undercover policeman, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He couldn't get involved in the next stage as a policeman because he was undercover. Exactly. But But he passed off all the information. Just thinking about that piece of it, you know, that um, this certainly would have put that operation in danger to be, you know, trying to be this undercover person and then running up and being in the center of the scene right. and then actually revealing the fact that he's undercover to this lieutenant. Right. But, you know, Mac is not thinking about any of that right now. Mm-hmm. He's just trying to help in, right. this, in this moment. All right. So your father was right in the middle of a very famous scene, um, partly by happenstance, partly by being the undercover agent who was the minister of transportation for, for the invaders, um, who then didn't really get the job that they were after anyway, right? Because uh, I think they didn't end up being the ones who uh, were going to protect for the for the sanitation strike. Oh, the uh, invaders? Yeah, the invaders, yeah. Oh, so you mean with uh, Dr. King's yeah. organization, yeah, the SCLC? Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, Dr. K- the SCLC, <laughs> they had this very strange kind of dance that they were doing because... Dr. King had previously led a demonstration in Memphis that turned into a gigantic disaster and actually endangered Dr. King's big poor people's campaign. And many people, including people in the SCLC, blamed the invaders for causing this disorder. It was the first march that I'm aware of that Dr. King ever led that became violent. Mm-mm. And so it was a huge black eye. It was a media spectacle. The FD- FBI had a field day with it. And so... Dr. King's strategy, you know, was to try to, you know, enlist the help of these invaders and say, we're concerned about what you're concerned about. We don't want violence in the next march. Can you help us have a nonviolent march? Mm -hmm. And the invaders are playing this game of, you know, they want 
Dr. King and the SCLC to think that they can control whether the march is violent or not. When the truth was, they, you know, as far as my father observed, they had nothing to do with the violence of mm. that march. But they that gives them some leverage to make demands on Dr. King. You know, we want cars. We want money. Yeah, we can help you have a peaceful march, but we need some things, you know. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's kind of the dance that they're doing. Yeah. Okay. So very complicated arrangement yes. that your father's right in the middle of. Yeah. All right. So time goes by. The the um, assassination is looked into, and your, your father was not really quizzed that much. I mean, he had he gave a report about it, but they, people didn't keep coming back to him looking for information. Not at all, and it's yeah. just very strange because yeah, he's interviewed by the FBI, um, and he you know tells them everything that he saw and observed, including mm-hmm. some strange things that were never followed up on, such as, I mean, I think the most notable thing that he observed was that it was his impression that the bullet that hit Dr. King had exploded, Mm -hmm. which, you know, an exploding bullet is not going to be an off-the-shelf type of bullet. Mm -hmm. But he had that impression because, you know, first and foremost, he believed he smelled something like gunpowder, you know, cordite, whatever you would call it, at the scene, which is highly unusual to smell that, where a bullet hits versus where it's fired. Right. And then just the nature of the wound and how the flesh was kind of extruded mm-hmm. outward, you know, and then some other things, just the, you know, uh, pinpricks of blood on Dr. King's shirt and things like that. And so he reports all this to the FBI mm-hmm. and they tell him, well, there's no such thing as an exploding bullet. You know, mm-hmm. we don't even have anything like that in our arsenal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, and that smell. Okay, fine. You know, so they, they basically kind of, um, they they kind of alighted over those details, I guess you could say. Um, and so that that never really came up again, like later in the congressional investigations, mm. you know, where my father has to testify. Right. Um, there, No one ever asks about that. Right. And, you know, um, so nothing ever came of it. But I don't know. I find it strange to this day. My dad finds it strange. Yeah. 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 So your father is now... Well, he's not a hero in the Memphis Police Department as a result of this a- at all. So, so he he starts to move along, but he seems like he reaches a glass ceiling of some kind, right? He definitely does. He ends up his cover gets blown, so he's got to leave town and you know go to Cleveland for a little bit and come back. Then he's overtly in the intelligence bureau for a little mm-hmm. while. Then he gets transferred to vice and narcotics, mm-hmm. you know, becomes a vice cop. You know, he's running informants, doing busts and buys and things like that, going to court, locking up, you know, dealers and things like that. But yes, he hits this glass ceiling. And he's good at it. He's really good at it. I mean, so he's got this partner, yeah, right, called, um, it, well, the guy, my dad nicknames him Billy Jack. So it's Dirty Mac and Billy Jack, you know, Mod Squad. I think there's another of their nicknames. And but and they're making these huge busts for the time, you know, getting thousands of dollars, you know, unheard of, you know, in Memphis. Um, but getting passed over for promotions where people who haven't done as much are getting promoted. And of course, I mean, this is racial as well. Mm-hmm. The city's about 30 percent black, at least. The police department, you know, uh, at least when he uh, joined it, was like 5.5% black. So clearly there's racism in the department. And he can see the writing on the wall very quickly that this is not a place where he's going to ever rise to the you know, top ranks. 
Now we're gonna have to we're gonna have to skip over some of the other very very fascinating things. We don't have enough time, but I want to go back to what happens in Washington later. So your father thinks about the FBI, realizes that won't work. Somebody suggests the CIA. He gets into the CIA. He goes to work for the CIA from the from the Memphis uh, Police Department. From Tibbs, Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs> to the Central Intelligence Agency, it, Langley, Virginia. Yes. Yeah, and then and then they sent him basically all over the world doing all these secret ops, which you still don't know what they are. Um, and uh, so so he has a whole career there. And in fact, he ends up being a, a boss in, in there. I mean, how many years did he, was he there? Also? Eight or nine or ten or something like that, right? I'm sorry? How many years was he there at the CIA? Eight or ten or something? He like. was there in total yeah. uh, from 74 to 99. Oh. oh yeah. So 25-year career. but mm-hmm. And he was... He he was like up to the level that he that he should have kept moving on, but he he hit a glass ceiling there too. But then he stayed another four or five years and right. finished off a career. So he has this great thing and during great career at the CIA. But during that career, there have been there were two investigations of the assassinations that happened many years after the assassination of Martin Luther King, and and why don't you just set up the one that's just so so. Your father was very. It was very interesting. First of all, his attitude towards it, but also just realizing from the start that he was just being used to, to by congressional by a congressional committee the first time that's ever happened i understand <laughs> yeah like that never happened <laughs> <laughs> so yeah he um so this would be in the late 1970s around you know, 77 78 he gets a call from the cia's office of general counsel that congressional investigators want to speak with my dad regarding the assassination assassination of Dr. King. So, I mean, at this point, this is 10 years old, you know, he's moved on. And so of course, you know, he wants to cooperate. And so he talks to these investigators and they're asking him, you know, about what he saw and witnessed. And, you know, he tells the same story of, you know, what happened, what he saw, what he observed. Um, And then the investigators want to come to, you know, back to the agency, go through his personnel file and everything. And he starts to realize that, you know, they seem to be making, at least some of them seem to be making a big deal about the fact that he is now working for the Central Intelligence Agency simply because, you know, of the optics of this, you know, like, oh, so he was a police mole, um, you know, at, at the scene and now he's with the CIA. And of course, this is in the context of, you know, we've had the church committee, you mm-hmm. know, hearings and, you know, there have been all these scandals in the world of intelligence. Um, and so he can see that. And in fact, he says, you know, if I had just gone and worked for General Motors or somewhere, I bet you all wouldn't even be that interested in me. Mm -hmm. But it just so happens that I work for the CIA. So now, you know, I'm so suspicious. Um, But anyway, he cooperates, you know, the entire time. Then he gets another call from uh, OGC. These investigators want him to testify in a public hearing on Capitol Hill um, before this uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations. About everything that he's already told him, which, you know, he's really worried because, you know, his job at the agency is not supposed to be public fodder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it it just seems ridiculous to him. He's told them everything that he knows, you know, which he's done before. He's talked to the FBI like there's nothing to be gained from this public testimony other than the spectacle of having this CIA officer, you know, testify. Without even asking him, just sort of implying that maybe the CIA put him in the Memphis Police Department, had him somehow help assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King. Oh, sure. I mean, it could be anything. Without without asking that question, but anything like that to just 
throw a Paul, instead of searching for the truth, of course, but instead, throw, throw an image on there that will keep conspiracy theorists busy for the next 30 or 40 years. Right, which, I mean, even the questions he's getting from some of these Congress people. Yeah. I mean, these yeah. folks are, you know, skeptical at best mm-hmm. to, you know, perhaps hostile, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're implying things like, oh, well, do you think that um, one of them asks, do you think that your attempt to render first aid could have perhaps, you know, caused Dr. King's demise, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just um, an all around awful, awful experience. Mm. Yeah. But your dad seems to have taken it in stride. Um, it's really pretty impressive. Walked away from it, tried to forget about it. Really, pretty impressive, actually. Um, so uh, he he goes back. That's the late seventies. He, he has another fourteen, fifteen years, or even more, even more than that, another twenty years in the in the CIA. And and uh, although they didn't bring him up to the absolute top three levels, he he got up very high for the time. Yeah, and then he hit this ceiling again that was not unlike the Memphis Police Department mm-hmm. ceiling. You know, with these issues of, um, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it wasn't happening. So yeah. he didn't make it where he should have. So um, he retires. Why don't you just give us a, a very short idea? Well, what, actually, I'd like there to be questions from the audience. and We don't have much time left. So so but your father retired, went, did, did a whole bunch of other things mm-hmm. and still Still, and he said he's he's organizing a, a reunion for the family. He organizes massive family reunions. I'm talking about people on like greyhound sized buses coming down <laughs> to where he lives. Um, he uh, is politically active. He helped get a sheriff elected down, uh, you know, down south. Uh, he went he moved to, back down south. He moved back down south. Your, your, your skepticism of that was in the book, too. Uh, yeah, because I just was like, really <laughs> back. I spent my whole life getting out of that place. But no, he went back down south and kind of built this place that's a little bit like the Tibbs that he remembers, the Waltonish, yeah. yeah. you know, place. He built that, but on his terms. This right, time. right. Yeah. yeah, with a lot more money behind it. A whole lot more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So are there any questions from the audience that you'd like to ask? Um, yeah, I'll bring you the uh, microphone. It's pronounced Lita? Yes. Lita. Oh, Steve, Steve Anderson. Uh, this is my beautiful wife here. We're from Memphis, Tennessee. Ah, nice. So, so um, we've been living here about 10, 10 years now. I grew up four miles from uh, the L- L- Lorraine Motel. Um, and, and first, thanks for doing this. Uh, th- this is awesome just to hear you speak about what, what, what went on and so forth in an area that was my backyard. Um, I just wasn't around there, <laughs> but I guess my question to you is, I was just curious from, from your talk is, um, you, you said something about he knew like, uh, where, 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 where it may have taken place at and where the bullet came from. Um, did he talk any about, cause that take a lot of skill, like, very, because I'm from the South and gu- guns is normal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I say that's very difficult to do, that is very difficult to shoot from that distance in something so small. Did he, did he talk about who would have the skill to do that? And 
I know that's a difficult question. That is a difficult but great question. First of all, I am so happy to see Memphians here. Thank you for coming. And um, no, he did not talk about that. In fact, my dad, you know, of course, he was trained on firearms in the military and the police department, but he's by no means an expert on, you know, guns, ballistics, things like that. So he never talked about that. I did some research on that. Um, and I mean, I'm even, I know even less about guns <laughs> than probably anyone in this room. But what I do know is that the type of gun that uh, James Earl Ray, you know, had apparently, you know, he had a, a 30 six rifle with a scope on it. And with that scope, and by the way, James uh, Earl Ray had some military training as well and could shoot, but he had this scope on there that would have made it, you know, not so difficult to make that shot. That's my understanding. Okay. I'm a non-expert, but that's what I understand. Well, it's not one of the situations where you, you it's impossible by the story. You know, that you, you, you read the ballistics and everything and you yeah. find, oh, it was impossible that it was done that way. Yeah. Oh, no, I think it's, it's, it's entirely possible. Yeah. I haven't heard any other uh, skepticism about that part. of the story. No, I don't think it would have been terribly difficult for him to have done. Somebody else had a question over here? No. You have one now. Okay. Um, did they ever prove, excuse me, they, did they ever prove that it was an exploding bullet that hit Dr. King? I have never heard anybody even mention it. I mean, <laughs> I've Googled this. No one ever talks about this. So, I, I mean, it's in my book. I hope somebody takes up the thread. You know, this makes me even sadder than the day it happened because I was alive the day it happened and it was horrible for me. But um, did you say that the other thing that your dad never met Dr. King before that day or was he, I, there was, um, did your father meet Dr. King before that day and talked with him and have a conversation with him? Um, he was in the room with him, you know, being the, the spy. He's kind of like the potted plant kind of guy. But he was in a small group meeting with Dr. King the day before the assassination. So on April 3rd, um, there was a, a small gathering. Some of the SCLC folks, you know, Dr. King, Jesse Jackson, you know, and then they had a youth coordinator or something in this room at the Lorraine. And then uh, so that's from the SCLC side. And then from the invaders side, you know, my dad was there. I think Charles Cabbage, you know one of the um, organizers um, and a couple other guys. And so he was, you know, in this small hotel room with Dr. King. And, and um, I mean, I don't think that they, you know, spoke, but he, I mean, Dr. King was talking, he was talking, you know, and so my dad was observing, you know, and reporting back on that. Did he ever tell you about any of the feelings he had about towards Dr. King? Yes, he did. Oh. He said that in that meeting, because of course I wanted to know what was it like? Yeah. Um, to be in that room. And he said that, you know, the man just exuded peace. And it was very striking because, I mean, the situation, the atmosphere was so tense. The pressure that everybody was under, you know, particularly Dr. King, was immense. And then you've got these, you know, invaders, you know, these activists making all these demands. We want money. We want cars. And he was just very even keel, very calm. He listened you know, he was very respectful. He didn't make any commitments to them. But my dad said that that he was a you know, a special person, that he did exude that that energy of, of just peacefulness. Did he go with him to that 
to his last sermon on that night on the third? He was there. Yes. Dad was there. That's right. The mountaintop speech that, um, you know, many people consider to be prophetic. I may not get to the mountaintop with you, but we as a people, you know, we'll get to the promised land, you know, but yeah. So my dad was there. Um, Was it? resonating with him or did he very much so and I, I wrote about it you know just the feelings that he had I mean because he was at a couple of Dr. King's speeches you know Dr. King came to Memphis a couple times and gave these big speeches my dad was at both of them and when Dr. King spoke I mean that was like thunder in the room just the energy the weight of what he was saying and the import behind it and my dad was right with it he agreed with everything and so just the um the irony though that he's in that room agreeing with Dr. King Dr. King is fighting for the rights of you know him and people like him and he's all for it and yet he's there on behalf of law enforcement which is adverse to him so it's it's a very complicated and unsettling situation. Wow. And I think one of the great things about your book is that you show how it it wasn't really complicated it was, yes, but but your father seemed to know exactly where to draw the line all the time in his own mind. Because he he um compartmentalized it, yeah. which has its own consequences. Yeah. One more question? Yeah. A quick question. Uh, has your father visited the um, museum at the Lorraine Motel, and have, what does he think of it? Yes. I went back to the museum. It's the National Civil Rights Museum, and we went there together with my family, and I've got video of, of it. And, uh, yeah, he. I, I just think, you know, some things are just ineffable. Like you cannot really put words to the feeling, but I just think the sense was, you know, he was back there. He was pointing out, Oh, this is where, you know, he was. And I saw this and um, I think, how did he feel? I just think it was very emotional. I think it was very heavy. If I see a video on Instagram, don't forget that. <laughs> yeah, just like a little bit. Yeah, I have. I do have a snippet of him reacting. So let's finish with one one last thing. You you talk about a meeting that your father had with Andrew Young, who was part of Martin Luther King's team. For those who don't know, um, and then was mayor of Atlanta and and UN ambassador uh, in 2017 when they were both. Well, your father wasn't quite 80, but but uh, Andrew Young was in his early 80s. Just say what happened. Yeah. Okay. So my dad and I, long story short, flew down to Atlanta and went to Andrew Young's house and, uh, you know, met his mother-in-law, went down to the living room and talked out everything. His mother-in-law is 83 years old. How old was the mother-in-law? Well, it was his wife's mother. Oh, I don't know. His younger wife, huh? Well, I mean, I didn't meet the wife, but oh. presumably, <laughs> but I just remember, I'm just, you know, going into this beautiful, you know, but unassuming ranch style house, you know, and passing by his mother-in-law is in the kitchen, just a normal scene, yeah. but yet so surreal. Yeah. And the yeah. fact that I've gotten these two people who were in that photograph, who were right. on that balcony, and they are now about to talk about everything that happened. Mm -hmm. And so we um, went down into this kind of sunken kind of den area. Mm -hmm. And he and my dad had a conversation and I mostly stayed out of it except to just observe and report kind of like my dad used to do, but mm. you know, with everyone's, <laughs> consent, everyone's consent. And um, I mean, I did ask a couple of questions, mm. but it was a really momentous meeting that I thought would never happen, but it yeah. did. Yeah. 
Now you explain how it happened and how it didn't happen in your book. It was very interesting. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for coming to the Commonwealth Club and, and sharing this with us. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, the, her book, The Kneeling Man, is uh, right out here. And uh, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 121st year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us here. Thank you, everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Very comfortable. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.